Yeah, I was sitting there singing, thinking about how my heart um, lifts in, in joy as I, I meditate on, on what I was singing, the words that, that are there. And I just thought about how, how thoughts actually give birth to, to emotion and how that's so unnatural in our, in our world. In our world, we're, we're, we're pumped and we're inundated with, with everything visceral, everything visual. It's like, it's like instant emotion. You see something and you, you, you just kind of react to it, and it used to not be that way. It used to be when you, when you actually took a thought in, and you meditated on it, and act, as you meditated on it and thought about, okay, what exactly does this mean? What are the implications of, of this? Then it actually moved you emotionally. It's a, it's a longer process, but, but it remains. Um, and uh, we have a passage in front of us this morning in Romans chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, that, that's packed full of, of words, words that, that you need to, to meditate on, these thoughts that are coming to you um, from God. And if you do, the response to, to verses 20 and 21 are, are overwhelming. I was telling Tim after the 8 o'clock service, even before uh, getting up here today, it's almost, uh, um, you just feel like you can't do this passage justice. Uh, that they're so, they're so breathtaking. Um, and unless you take these words in and, and actually think about them and allow the Spirit of God to ignite them, uh, it, it won't fall the way that the Lord intends it to hit in, in, in your heart. But if it does, um, the emotions that, that this passage produces because of the truth that's in it is, is, is amazing. If you're not already encouraged this morning, you, you should be by the time you, you, you leave today. In fact, I would say if you're not encouraged, it's either because I did a horrible job of preaching or you didn't. You didn't do what I just said. You didn't pay attention. There's not a verse that we have covered in all of Romans. Now think of all the verses that we've covered in Romans. There's not a verse that we've covered in all of Romans that is more assuring and more encouraging to sinners than, than this verse. That's a pretty tall expectation to, to create in an introduction before we even get into the text. But, but knowing what this passage says, I'm... I'm that confident. And last week, we began looking at these closing words of this section, which begins all the way back in verse 12 of chapter 5. And Paul has one final detail that he wants to share because, um, because it's important before he moves on to chapter 6 and, and, and 7. Chapter 6 teaches us all about the, 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 the grace of God that conquers the, the power of sin and and Paul wants us to understand something profound before we get there, which is actually going to set up chapter 6 and, and, and chapter 7. In fact, if you don't understand what he's saying here in verses 20 and, and 21, you'll not fully grasp the, the message or even the purpose of chapter 6 and chapter 7. Chapter 6 and chapter 7 are actually an extended commentary on these, on these two verses. I mean, what Paul unleashes here. Uh, it is going to take two full chapters in the book of Romans to, to, to try to keep it channeled in the right direction and, and answer the questions. I mean, it kind of sits, these two verses kind of sit at a crossroads in Romans in, in one sense, summarizing everything that Paul has been saying in the, in the previous chapters. I mean, verse 21, just look at it. It says, so that as sin reigned in death, that's chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 1, 2, and 3, all about sin and sin's reign. And then it says, even so, grace would reign through righteousness. Grace, at the end of chapter 3, this flooding grace that comes in, even though we were, we were sinners. Um, that's grace results in justification. We're declared righteous by God, even, even though we're not. 
And that's chapter 3 and 4. It's always been by justification. And then then it's to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's all of chapter 5. You have peace with God through Jesus Christ. You're now in Jesus Christ rather than Adam and... Just a summary. The verse also sets up the next two chapters, though. It's, it's that packed with, with, with meaning. I mean, there's no need to, to speak about the law and how the law now re- relates to a believer. Um, in chapter 7, if you don't understand why God gave it, and if you don't hear that, that God, God gave it to increase the increased transgression and in verse 20, I mean, questions like uh, Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then is, is the law sin? I mean, you wouldn't be asking that question if, if Paul didn't say what he said in verse 20. Well, the answer is may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the, through the law. You wouldn't, you wouldn't need Romans seven thirteen. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? You wouldn't be asking that question. If Paul hadn't said what he said in verse 20, may it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it, that it might be shown to be sin affecting my, my death. So that the commandment, in the commandment, through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. There would be, be, be no one asking that question if Paul had not said what he said in, in, in verse 20. There would be no need to detail the triumphant reign of grace over, over the slavery that, that you were under in sin in chapter 6, unless you heard in verse 21 how grace is, is almost outrageously reigning uh, uh, through the righteousness. I mean, almost scandalously reigning. Which is why Paul starts chapter 6 the way that he does. I mean, mean, look at verse 1 of chapter 6. Look at this question. The very next thing, right after these verses that we're covering. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? May it never be. Or by no means. New commentary explaining this. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? I mean... Why ask such a strange question? I mean, who would ever think that? That, that you should just go on sinning because you're, you're a believer. Well, someone who is actually paying attention to what Paul says here in verse 21, what he says about grace. But if you understand these two verses, then that question makes perfect sense. I mean, he asks that question because what he says here about grace is so shocking. So seemingly outrageous, it, it stuns you. I mean, so he has to de- debunk the, the, the silly notions that come into our mind and then answer questions about how we operate in grace while, while we still have indwelling sin. Because what he says here is, is, is it's a flooding grace that doesn't just cover our sins, it, it, it engulfs them, it it's an affecting grace, a powerful grace that invades our, our, our lives and our world. He says it's a reigning grace that rules over us like a benevolent king. And, and it in turn makes us rulers with Jesus Christ at, at some point. And, and it's an eternal grace, it, which is ours now. But, but never ends. I mean, it ushers uh, us into the eternal realm where we will be with Christ forever. I mean, that's what's in front of us in this, in this verse today. All to assure us that those of us who have believed upon Jesus Christ this morning, we are, we are eternally secure. And remember, that's Paul's main concern in this passage. You don't want to lose the context of assurance. It's that every believer would know that they're saved and have absolute assurance by that. And he wants to reinforce that by adding some theological truths to your, to your confidence. So chapter 5, he begins laboring to show us how everything has changed since you have come to Christ by, by faith. We have many justified blessings in verses 1 through 11. You remember it begins with, since we have been justified by faith, there's a transition, there's something new that's happened. We now have peace with God and a whole bunch of other things that he lays out for us. We also have a new union, which is verse 12 
through verse 19, uh, because there's a change in our association with Adam, which brings massive assurance. I mean, all of us were condemned in Adam, our forefather, but believers now have a new union. We're no longer in Adam. We, we have a new representative, someone who stands before God, uh, uh, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the, the righteous. And in Him, your relationship to Adam has now changed, and that's been replaced by, by a new association. I mean, that's what Paul's been explaining to us. And, and our verses are the final word on the matter that transitions us into these, these next two chapters. And you remember, he, he started by explaining, where did sin come from? Where did death come from? Sin entered through Adam, and then death is a, is a, is a product of, uh, of sin, and then death spread to all because all sinned. And then he gives these two parenthetical statements to explain uh, Adam's sin, and he mentions the law, and then another one in verses 15 through 17, how Adam and Christ are different. Then he comes back in verses 18 and 19 and summarizes and sums up what he started and it's the whole point about the, the union between these two men and, and the people that they represent. But back in verse 13, Paul brought up the Mosaic Law. And he didn't say a lot about it. He applied the law to, to the transgression of Adam and the condemnation that we have because of, because of Adam. And then that leads to more questions about the, uh, about the law. Uh, a, Jewish, uh, a Jewish believer uh, listening was likely saying, I mean, if the law can't save me, and it and it doesn't condemn me, because I'm already condemned. Of course, the law increases our condemnation, but we were already condemned before the law came. It doesn't save me, and it doesn't condemn me to begin with. I mean, then what's the purpose of the law? And Paul answers that question in verses 20 and 21. And so we said last week that he, God provides two additional details about the, the role of the law, verses 20 and 21. And he starts with God's purpose for adding the law. And then the second detail, which we'll look at today, is about grace's reigning result through righteousness. The role of the law, the first detail that he gives us, is the purpose of, of, of adding it. And he tells us in verse 20, it was added alongside, it was added to accelerate, and it was overpowered by grace. Look at verse 20. He says, the law came in in order that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I mean, Paul says, furthermore, one more thing, and then he makes this statement about the law, the purpose of the law. He's talking about the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant. Everything God gave the Jewish people on Sinai, he says God gave all of that to Moses as an additive to his plan of salvation. And he did that so the transgression of Adam that he just got done talking about would actually increase. It was added alongside, and it was added to accelerate. It was supplementary. It was so sin would, would increase. And that's the exact opposite of what uh, a, a Jewish person was taught to think. They were taught that the law's role actually promoted righteousness. And in a certain way, it does. But for people who are under the condemnation of Adam and have the nature of Adam, it, it, it can't produce that first. And they were taught it was to deal with the very sin that Adam introduced, and it surely doesn't do that. I mean, Paul says that it actually has a very different purpose and a very different result. I mean, Paul uses a word that, that, that means the law came in alongside of something, and he tells us what it comes in alongside of back in verse 12. Verse 12. It says, therefore, just as through one man, and we learned that was Adam, sin entered into the world. And, and so here's what comes in first. Sin enters into the world, and then the law comes in alongside of, of Adam's sin, what was already there. So sin entered into the world through the single transgression of Adam, and now he says the law enters as well alongside it or beside it, and the purpose was to make the transgression increase. It's very important for you to be able to understand your Old Testaments and the, and the role of the law because Paul indicates that the law was supplemental. It was actually brought in to make everyone little atoms. I mean, the transgression that he's talking about here is the offense of Adam, but our offenses increase. Look at verse 20. It says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Remember, that's singular. So that's Adam's transgression would increase. 
But look at the second half of the verse. But where sin increased, now he changes the term, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So he starts the passage talking about the transgression of Adam increasing by adding the law, but then in the second part of the verse he says sin in general increased. I mean, how does Adam's transgression that happened way back in the garden increase thousands of years later by adding the law of Moses? How how, how does that increase happen? Well, it increased the the number of sins by, by those who are in Adam. And since Adam started the whole thing, he gets part of the blame. But the law increased the seriousness of sin as well because it made all of those people transgressors like Adam. I mean, Adam received a command from God, and his one single act of transgression condemned mankind. That's what existed before the law came in. But then the law has been brought in alongside that circumstance, and now everyone has a law. And now everyone has something to step across, a line, a defined line to step across, and we all do. We all transgress just like Adam. But the law was something additional. It was not something of fundamental importance. It's not something that remains. It's an additive. It's not the main thing in God's plan of salvation. It's not even the end thing, as I'll show you today. I mean, in salvation history, the law has a subordinate, a secondary role, not a primary one, like, like the Jews of Paul's day believed. So don't get it backwards. I mean, I mean... Don't idolize the Jewish practices or, or the Sabbath or, or, or think that, that somehow they have it better. There's blessing that, that's there. But you're the ones that are complete, Jew or Gentile today, in Christ. The Mosaic law is not the end, is what Paul says here. Because no law can change the heart. Adam and Christ are the primary figures. The Mosaic law is in here between them for a specific purpose but it only increases our need because of what Adam already sowed in our hearts. And so we talked about how the law increased last week. This is all review. It makes sin increase by making sin more specific. The law defines our sin. Making sin more serious is now rebellion. There's a line to step across and making sin more seducing. When we're told not to do something, what happens in our hearts? We want to do it all the more. But this verse doesn't stop there, thankfully. (laughs) He goes on to explain how the law was not the end. Look at verse 20. This is new. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But, and here is the adversative. One writer said, most great theology hangs on that one little word in the Bible, doesn't it? And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, so on and so on, but God being rich in mercy. And in the same way here as sin increased, Paul says, but grace abounded all the more. Paul says sin increased mathematically and in severity, but grace super increased. Uh, above it all. Or to say it another way, God's ultimate, ultimate purpose in adding the law was not to increase sin, but to magnify the power of grace, magnify the, the force of, of grace. I mean, you see that in verse 20? Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I mean, God intended the law to increase the gravity and the number of sins. That's true. But his purpose in doing so was so that the power of grace would be seen for for what it is. Something that magnified, something that was magnified and and conquered sin. Paul says the law is leading us somewhere. It it, it shows us that the the problem with Adam, that that what he introduced into the world is, is not fixed by the law. But it's utterly obliterated through through grace. And so grace was increased then to meet the need. I mean, God adds the law to increase the problem, to increase the sin, so that he can add the grace to to superabound above the the need. And verse 21 is going to tell us why he did that. Now Paul says where sin increased, grace super increased all the more. 
And he uses two different words here. Um, the, the word for sin, increasing, and then the, there's a different word for grace, superabounding. And again, it, it's, it's, a, it's a word with a prefix on it, and the prefix is hyper. You probably, we still use that prefix today. It hyper-increased. It's, it, it's, it's what's called a superlative, meaning it's something super or something enhanced, meaning that Paul is not equating sin with grace here, like they're, like they're, they're, they're two sides of the, of the coin. I mean, with the increase of grace, that met the, the need of sin proportionally. Whatever sin increased, then grace meets it. If so, that would be a comparative. Here's one side of the coin, sin. Here's the other side of the coin, grace, that, that matches it. Instead, he uses a superlative, which, which is to say one is much greater than the other. I mean, it's not possible to say it any stronger than, than Paul does here. Sin increased and grace hyperabounded. I mean, grace did not merely counteract what sin had done, which would be wonderful, by the way, wouldn't it? I mean, if grace just simply counteracted what sin had done, if it simply wiped out or canceled our, 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 our sin, I mean, if it provided an equal force, I mean, that, that would be wonderful because it would be unbelievable because of the, the, the judgment that, that hangs over us. The Apostle Paul said, this is not grace that offsets our sin. It's amazing grace. It's, it's grace that engulfs it and, and overflows everywhere, uh, all around it. It wipes it away it, it, to where it's impossible to even pick it out I- I- anymore. That's the idea of this, this word. It's grace that's, that's greater than all of my sin. This is what the Bible means, uh, means whenever um, it uses phrases like this in, uh, in Psalm 103. I think this is probably where Paul's drawing this, this word from. Psalm 103. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east, is from, how far is the east from the west? I mean, it's endless, right? Or Micah seven nineteen. He will again have compassion on us, and He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Well, the sea actually has a bottom, but we can't always see the bottom. The, sea, the part of the sea He's talking about here is, is the Mariana Trench. It's, it's something way, way down there. Now again, meditate on these words, or these are verses that you've heard before and they just kind of bounce right off. I mean, think about what he's saying. The profile of your sin compared to grace, whenever it's applied, is like a small pebble at the, at the bottom of the ocean where you couldn't even pick it out. Does your sin look massive and big to you? I mean, so big that you can't overcome it, so big that it, it's crushing you under the weight uh, under the weight of it, it is. It, it, it's that horrific, that powerful in, in your life. When God unleashes grace through, through, through Christ, it's swept away like a little pebble. It, it, it's like a small stone in the bottom of the bottom of the ocean. It's too big for you, but it's nothing for the Lord. And it's not even that, because your sin is not even there anymore. It's been washed away. It's been wiped away. It's gone. And, and what's left is this ocean of flooding grace, Paul says. I mean, we're literally swimming in a sea of grace as believers. So wide and so deep that you can never reach the shore, and you could never find the, the, the bottom. I mean, we could translate this expression superabounded or, or abounded beyond measure, grace overflowed. I mean, it's the idea of a mighty, as if a mighty flood were, were, were let loose, sweeping everything in its path. I mean, I think the word engulfed is, is, is a good word. It has such a superabundance that it, it drowns our sin. I've thought about so many ways to try to illustrate this. And every one just seems to come up, come up short. Uh, uh, I mean, imagine if, if your sin was like a small bucket sit, sitting at the bottom of an Olympic-sized swimming pool, which is 160 feet long and 56 feet wide and at least two meters deep. I looked that up. 
It's big. And there's a bucket in the middle of it. And imagine that bucket is, is filled with uh, the dirtiest, filthiest vial that you can imagine. And sitting in the bottom of this empty swimming pool. And, and maybe you, 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 you let the sun in. The sun ripens it and, and just it increases the stench to where you can't hardly stand it. Now imagine someone filling up that pool with all 2.5 million liters or 660,000 gallons of, of, of clean water, which is what that, that, that pool holds. Now that little bucket is submerged. It's, it's flooded. And you're still not even close to this word. I mean, the pool would have to be not an Olympic-sized swimming pool. It would have to be like the Atlantic Ocean. But do you think that whatever happens... Whatever nastiness was in that, in that bucket, that, that that can stand against that volume of water? I mean, even when it was left in the heat to increase? It's nothing compared to that volume of, of water. Or imagine your sin is like a single grain of sand that has soaked up the, or dirt, that's soaked up the most contaminated toxins you can think of all, all around it. And, and someone places that that little grain of sand or speck of dirt at the mouth of the Colorado River during the, the peak snowmelt when the, when the flowing water rushes and rages and descends down the, the canyon. Do you, canyon, do you think that, that that grain of sand, no matter how contaminated it was, could withstand the force without being washed away by that torrent of water? Paul says what's, that's what your sin is like. Oh, it's nasty, it's vile. It's contaminated you to the core, but when God's grace is applied to it, it's overrun, it's submerged, it's washed away, it's, it's deluged or deluged like, like Noah's flood. It's swallowed up, which is the exact same concept that Paul uses about death in, in 1 Corinthians 15.4. He uses this same idea. The verse that we read almost at every believer's funeral where, where death is swallowed up in victory at the resurrection it says, but then this perishable, that's our human bodies, our earthly bodies, but then this perishable will have put on imperishable at the resurrection. And this mortal will have put on immortality. Then, when that happens, will come about the saying that it is written, death is swallowed up in, in, in victory. That's what happens to death because of the resurrection. It's not merely balanced out or canceled out. It's, it's swallowed like Jonah was, but it's never spit out again. Death has been overcome in, in this victorious gobbling of, of, of the resurrection. It's like a stone hurled into the sea. When you were a kid, did you ever go to Smith Mountain Lake or Leesville Lake somewhere else and you, you, you've got a, you, you have a high place, maybe a cliff there, and you have a big stone and you kind of throw it over and you watch it? Boom, the bigger it is, it just, just goes down in the water, and then the water just comes back over top of it, makes a splash, and then it's gone. You never see it again. That's the idea of death here in the resurrection. It's consumed. It's out of sight. And Paul says that's exactly what happens to your sin and grace. Think about that. I think this is what Paul is talking about. The power of grace here is what Paul is talking about back in Romans 1.16. You remember Romans 1, 16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I have no fear whatsoever proclaiming the gospel that, that if I proclaim it, if, if you believe it, you'll be saved, that somehow that's going to put me to shame, that I'm going to do that and then it's not going to work. Why? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Power to do what? Power to overflow, power to overwhelm, sin, condemnation, and, and death. When we normally don't think of grace. Uh, when we think about grace, we don't normally think about grace as a power. We, 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 we think of it as a, as a disposition or an attitude. But Paul says it's like a power. I mean, James Montgomery Boyce said, said that very thing. We, we even define grace that way. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's a, it's a disposition of God toward us. He's gracious toward us. But grace is more than an attitude, he said. It, 
It is also a power that reaches out to save those who are apart from that power would, would perish. And that power, the, the power that, would, that, that we were once under of sin is increasing because of the law. We were made like little atoms. The power is there. It's condemned us, and now it's just increasing. And our condition is bad, but Paul says God's grace is, is greater. It's much more. It's much more than our sin. It's much more than our condemnation, much more than our weakness, much more than our inability. Is your sin bad? So bad that you don't even want anybody to know about it? I can say definitively to you before, before God Himself, however bad it is, grace can handle it. You can't just handle it. It'll take it completely out of the way. But why? I mean, it's an ocean of grace that floods us, but why? Why does God bring in the law after we're already condemned so that sin can increase, so we can become like little Adams? So then He can bring in grace that, that, that floods like, a, like an ocean. I mean, why does He do that? Well, that's what He describes in verse 21. He actually tells us. The second detail about the role of the law is grace's reigning result through righteousness. Look at verse 20, and then we'll get to 21. Put them, put them both together. It says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. There's the, the, the purpose of the law. But where sin increased, God responded, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our, our, our Lord. Grace abounded all the more so that grace would reign. It's another so that clause. It's a summary statement about God's purpose for grace increasing. It was so that grace would reign. That's the ultimate result of adding the law. Do you see that? Grace abounded in verse 21 so that grace might reign in verse, in verse 21. Sorry, grace abounded in verse 20 so that grace might reign. It's not so our sin could increase, although it did. It was not even so that grace could abound. It was so in God's saving purposes that, that grace would actually reign. And Paul describes a fourfold reign of grace here. Here is the, the tightly packed and condensed theology of five chapters in, in one verse. It says grace reigns over sin. It reigns through righteousness. Grace reigns to eternal life, and, and grace reigns by or through Jesus Christ. So follow it along verse by verse. Verse 21. It, it reigns. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign. It reigns as opposed to sin reigning, Paul says. The second phrase. It reigns through righteousness. So that grace would reign through righteousness. That is the gift of God's righteousness to us through justification by faith. The third phrase. To eternal life, meaning it's expressed in eternal life. The result of this grace reigning will be eternal life. So it's resulting in eternal life, this reign of grace. And then the fourth, through the mediation of Jesus Christ our, our Lord. Those are the four, over sin, through righteousness, to eternal life, by or through Jesus Christ. And Paul starts with a comparison that he's already given us. So we're very familiar with this. It's the reign of sin. Before he brings out the sun, he, he points us to the, to the black cloud one more time. Verse 21, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign. Paul says in Adam, sin reigned. What does he mean by that? Sin reigned. You're just a, a, a good person that does bad things sometimes. That's not what he says. He says the power of sin rules over you, ruled over us before we came to, to Christ. And after the law, that power increased. The grip tightened. I mean, this is why you can never work your way to heaven. You ever played with one of those um, uh, Chinese finger puzzles? He says that's, that's what it's like. You know, the ones that you put in here and you try to pull it, and the harder you pull it, the, the, tighter, it, the tighter it gets. That, that's... That's the way the law works. The harder you work, the tighter the grip, the, the greater the condemnation. 
And Paul reminds us here in verse 21 of what he's already described to us back in chapter 3. Chapter 1, the pagan is condemned. Chapter 2, the moral Jewish man is condemned. Chapter 3, we're all condemned. Why? Because we're all under sin. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not even one. All are under sin. Under sin's bondage. Under sin's hold. Under, under its dominion. Under its reign. Sin reigns. And you can't understand the flooding result of grace unless you understand the reign of sin that you were, you were once under. So Paul begins here. It means you were dominated by a monarch. I mean, this is what Paul is, is explaining in chapter 7 when he personifies sin, indwelling sin. It's, it, it's there. The ruler gets dethroned, but, but, but there's still a hangover of his rule. Romans 7. But we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold in bondage to, to sin. For what, I'm, what am I doing? I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, what I even desire to do. But I'm doing the very thing that, that I hate. For I know that, that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For the, for the willing is present, the, the desire is present, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I desire, I, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I, I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, then I'm no longer doing it, but sin, which dwells in me. I mean, the Bible describes sin as indwelling. You sin because you're a sinner. And that sin, that sin nature, sits over you like a king. I mean, Paul's not saying that sin simply lives in, in our hearts. It governs us like a, like a master. And if it was that bad for Paul after he became a believer in, in Romans 7, can you imagine what it's like before you become a believer? Actually, you can if you're a Christian. You know what it was like. You tried to stop and you couldn't. You stopped for a period of time only for it to creep back in. You think you got victory and then it just waylays you. It comes out of nowhere. Or you try really, really hard and you just can't. And you say things like, I just can't stop. And you, you sense this this dominion, the, the, the bondage, these chains that, that are there, and they're real. And you can't stop unless God's grace is unleashed on you, a power that has the ability to unlock the chains and put a new reign over you, which is what he's saying here. We became slaves under the government and tyranny of sin. We were dominated, or to say it another way, your freedom disappeared, which is why Jesus says... If you'll listen to me, the truth, I'll set you free. Free from what? You remember what the Jews said? Free from what? We're Abraham's children. What do we need to be free from? It's not that you don't have wills after Adam. I mean, you have wills. You make choices all the time. Sinners make choices all the time. We can choose. The problem is we just always choose wrongly. We choose sin. Because your will is a is motivated by your desire. The desire in you then leads you to, 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 to do what you want. You do what you want to do as a sinner. You just don't desire God. Lloyd-Jones said, it's not biblical to think a sinner is, is someone who's occasionally doing wrong. The biblical understanding is that a sinner is a slave under the dominion of sin. From the moment Adam fell... There is no such thing as freedom. Adam was free, but not a single child of Adam has ever been free. Adam lost our freedom for us. As the Bible says, we are born in shapen, in iniquity. In sin, my mother did conceive me. We're born under it. And our problem and everyone's problem since Adam is not that we sinned. Our, our problem is we're under the dominion of sin. We're in bondage to it. Our souls are reigned over by, by sin. And, and, and notice where sin reigns. It reigns in the realm of death. Remember, sin has a, 
has an ugly twin, a byproduct that it brings with it. Paul said death. And this phrase can be either instrumental, sin reigned through death, or it's sphere, which I think is better. I mean, sin reigned in the dominion of death. Sin came in the world and death is all around us. The stench of death is all around us. It, it's produced by, by this dominion of sin, since sin is portrayed as a power that rules over all. I think sphere is best. That's the sphere, the scope, the, the domain. Sin is in control. In this domain of death, it means that, that sin leads to death in every shape and, and form. And when Paul says this, he's summing up the consequences of Adam's sin. It, it, it's death, both physical and, and spiritual. You're bound by sin and you face death. But look at what else is reigning now that grace increases to meet our sin. Verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign. Notice the comparison, as sin reigned, even so grace would reign. Like the, like the blazing sun that comes out behind this very dark, dark cloud, you not only have sin and grace increasing as a result of the law, but you have sin reigning and you have grace reigning. Sin reigning unto death and grace reigning through righteousness. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce said the illustration that Paul uses here in, in reigning is like two rival kingdoms. And he compares these powers as, as two monarchs reigning. One king is a despot. He's invaded our world and established ruthless control over all men and women. The end of this king's rule is death for all persons, and this king's name is sin. The other king is a gracious ruler. He has come to save us from sin and bring us into a realm of eternal happiness. The, the end of this king's rule is eternal life, and this king's name is grace. And if you want to use our illustration of grace being a power from verse 20, grace reigning is more than just an offer to help. It's even more than the help itself, if you, if you follow it. I mean, grace is an invasion by this good and legitimate king of a territory of a lesser king. And God is the one who's thrown his weight behind this king grace, and this grace will triumph. Boy, that changes things, doesn't it? And you're looking at your sin, and it is so heavy, and it's crushing, and it's, it's got you weighed down, and you can't break free, and there's nothing you can, you can do from it, and it's true. You're, you're, you're hunched over, and Paul says, look up. There's another king that can reign over you. And that power can remove your sin and your weakness to deal with it. And this grace's reign results and eternal life through righteousness. Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness. Notice at the end of the verse, it also says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's through righteousness to eternal life, and through Jesus Christ our Lord, the two agencies through which grace would reign, Colin Cruz. Paul says, while death reigned in the old world, it reigned after Adam, it reigned during the time of Moses. There's a greater power now that has invaded that same world, the power of grace, and it's reigning through righteousness. It doesn't just come to people and splash on you. It actually reigns through this justification, this declaration that God makes about you. How do you get into the reign of grace, the benefits of the reign of grace? It's through righteousness. I mean, the purpose of grace increasing is, is to break the power of reigning sin, and grace manifests its rule by conquering that sin so that people are no longer condemned before God but stand right before Him, and that happens through God taking sinners and declaring them righteous even though they're not because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is what he's already explained to us. This reign of grace comes through the gift of God's righteousness. It's not through the law. It's not through your righteousness. It's through a judicial declaration. Grace reigns even over sinners because those sinners have been reconciled to God. This is what Paul said back in Romans 3, 23 and 25, the gospel passage 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And he explains the redemption. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, a satisfaction in His blood through faith. And this was to demonstrate His righteousness, not ours, but God's. Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over sins previously committed. He passed over the sins that, that, that were there up until the law of Moses. It passed over the increasing sins that the law brought in, meaning that he didn't immediately bring about judgment. He withheld his judgment because he knew what he was going to do later for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. And Paul's talking about when Jesus came. And all of that was so that he would be just. He doesn't just overlook sin, but he would also be the justifier, the declarer of, of righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. It's not religion. It's not going to the Pope. It's not confessing. It's not being baptized. It, it's Christ. It's a declaration of righteousness. And you say, but I'm not righteous. You're exactly right. You're not. And you say, I'm a great sinner. You're exactly right. You are. But as your sin increased, grace was unleashed into the world so that grace could reign, and it reigns by faith in Jesus Christ, by faith, then God then declares you righteous. And that righteousness was demonstrated on the cross. It was applied to us by faith. And that's how grace can reign, and God can remain just. And, of course, grace also produces righteous living. The gift of righteousness changes our status before God and involves a changed life. And, and the result of this gift is eternal life which is life of the age to come. Look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned, you were once under that dominion, even so grace would reign through righteousness, through justification, and it reigns. How long does sin reign? How far does sin reign? How long is that king on the throne? To eternal life. I mean, eternal life will be fully realized at the resurrection, but Paul says this... Life has invaded this present evil age, one commentator said. And grace now reigns over us even while we wait on, the, wait on the resurrection. I mean, here's another one of those much more statements where Paul doesn't use much more. I mean, think about the comparison that he makes here. What is the opposite of death? Well, you'd say life. If I'm not dead, I'm I'm alive. I'm not alive, I'm, I'm dead. But, but notice Paul says it's unto eternal life. Not just physical life, but eternal life. It's not just alive. It's eternally alive. It's alive forevermore. And that's how long this grace reigns. That's the end of this reign. It's, it's eternal life that never, 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 ever, ever ends. And then Paul ends the chapter the same way he started it. Look, look back at... Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Look at how he starts the chapter. It's amazing. I mean, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he ends chapter 5 the same way. Verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. All the blessings of justification through peace and through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have been translated to, uh, under a new representative in Christ. And now we have the reign of grace through, through Jesus Christ our, our Lord. All of this was made possible by by the mediation of the Son of God. He's our high priest. And grace reigns through him. And that's what Paul's assuring and, and encouraging message was, was to bring. Those who are in Christ are swimming in an ocean of grace. However massive your sin is before the bar of God, Grace is like an engulfing ocean. And God had made it that way so that then grace would reign over you 
even as sin once reigned over you like an evil king, grace is now reigning. And it's reigning through justification. There's no other way you can get into grace. There's no other way you can get out from under the reign of sin, the bondage of sin, under the, under the, the reign of grace, apart from justification, apart from God giving that to you as a gift through Jesus Christ, faith alone. And that reign will last forever and ever and ever. And the one who made all that possible was God's Son. One writer said it's only when you have the two sides put together that you actually understand salvation. The depth of your iniquity and the heights of grace and the depths of mercy. And may I say to you, you're in one of those two positions this morning. You're either under grace as a believer and if so, you have so much to rejoice about. Or you're under the, the thumb of sin, the reign of sin. And I don't have to tell you that it's a miserable reign because you're there like I was for 24 years. One of those two things reigns over you. I hope it's grace. But if it's not, Paul... God himself introduces you to a new king, a benevolent and gracious king who can wash away all of your sins and bury them in the bottom of the sea. If you'll but bow your knee humbly to him and acknowledge, I can't, but you did, and I believe. And that's the gospel. And it's good news, isn't it? Let's pray. dominated by sin, Lord, unable to come to you without desire. Oh, lots of will, lots of choices, none of them good. No power. And then the gospel comes, the good news, which is the power of God unto salvation, and unleashes your power you hold it out before us, and I pray that any person outside of Christ this morning would be invaded by that grace and would lay hold of the promise that's theirs in Jesus. I pray for every Christian this morning. Lord, maybe in Romans 7, sin is still there. Maybe in Romans 6 already have been forgiven, but, but now they're yielding their members to unrighteousness. They're gooing back under that, that wicked king. I pray you would show them this morning that he has no power anymore. Sin has no power. And that they would turn to you and get victory. In Jesus' name, amen.